Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. God, for those who grew up in the church, the story we're going to look at this morning is an old and familiar story. But we pray that you would open it up to us and give us fresh eyes for something we think we already know. We pray that you would help each of us to walk away with questions that are gnawing at our hearts and with answers that are refreshing our spirits. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you a story this morning. I don't know if the uh, slide, can we get that slide up there? And it's a story that for some of you will be a really old, familiar story. And for others, it's going to be a brand new story. It's a very old story. And when I say the word story, I don't mean fiction. I mean a historical account of something that actually happened between real people, which was preserved and recorded for us for our benefit. It's a story about a, about a prophet named Elijah and, an, and a young widow who have a chance meeting orchestrated by God, and something amazing happens in both of their lives. And at the end of the day, if you really look at this story carefully, what you realize, if I had to describe it in one single word, I would say that this is a story about faith. It's a story about faith. And faith means a lot of things to a lot of people. Uh, we're going to look at what faith really means. How many of you guys have ever heard the saying, somebody just told you, hey, you've got to have faith. Didn't George Michael once sing that to us in the 80s? You, you got to have faith. I have no idea what most people mean when they say that, but I think that God in His Word is pretty clear what He means when He tells us to have faith. So let me just read the story along with you, okay? Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, I'm sorry, as she was going to get it, he called and bring me please a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in this jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Kind of depressing so far. Just hang on. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then... Make something for yourself and your son. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go, I'm sorry. <laughs> for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, 
and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. Then the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. I want to give you some principles about faith that I pick up from this particular story. And I hope that they'll challenge you to think about what faith as a word, as a concept, will mean to you for the rest of your life. And the first principle I see is that faith must be acted upon. That's not every day you see such a violent image in a sermon about faith, but I'll connect what I'm saying with that image in a moment. You know, you look up the word faith in any dictionary, and you're going to come across words in the definition like this. You'll see words like belief, or trust, or confidence, or loyalty, or principle, or dogma. You're going to see words like that because faith to many people is something that takes place entirely up in here. Really, when most people say to you, you got to have faith, what they're saying is you've got to have a change of mind. Something's got to click in your thinking, and that's all that has to happen, is you've got to believe in a different outcome, right? So let's say that uh, you're trying out for the team, a football team at school or a soccer team at school, and you, you go through tryouts and you're wondering, am I going to make the team? All the other kids look like they're pretty good. Maybe you go out for a job interview, and you apply, and you have great interviews, but then you're wondering, there are other people they're interviewing. I wonder if I'll make the cut. And someone says to you, you know what? you just got to have faith. What they're usually saying is, you've got to really have positive thinking. You've got to believe and visualize that you're going to get that spot. Don't worry about it. But I think that's a misleading or at least incomplete definition of faith. Because it would lead you to believe that the only thing that has to change in faith is your mind or your thinking. Listen to what the brother of Jesus, a guy named James, would write about this principle about a thousand years later. He said, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. A little later in that same writing, he, he said this, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. You know, back to that picture. The reason I chose that image is we have this common saying in English, you've got to pull the trigger, right? You hear people talking about, ooh, I'm going to ask that girl out on a date one of these days. Ooh, I'm going to try to get into college one of these days. Ooh, I'm going to finish my education. I'm going to build that hot rod. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. And people believe and, and have faith in things and they plan things forever. But there's a saying that says eventually you can't just change your thinking. You've got to do something. You've got to pull the trigger on that great idea. And the reason I like that saying is because the pulling of a trigger is such a definitive action. Nobody, well, not in this part of the world, in other parts of the world, when they celebrate, they just fire guns into the air. A very dangerous practice, in my opinion. But in this part of the world, when you pull the trigger on a gun, you've got to be darn sure you mean it. 
Because there's no unfiring a bullet, is there? It is such a defining action. When a police officer fires his, 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 discharges his service weapon, there's a lot of paperwork that comes along with that because you can't just be a police officer or, or an agent just running around shooting your gun at things willy-nilly. It's such a defining and conscious act, and that's really the nature of what faith is. James teaches us that faith without some accompanying action that reveals that faith is really an empty and dead faith. Another, another way of saying that is faith must be acted upon if it is to exist at all. You see, a faith that doesn't have action doesn't actually exist. Okay? It's just a thought and nothing more. You know, throughout this story, we know that Elijah and this widow both showed their faith by what they did in response to what they believed. Think about this. One of, one of Elijah's jobs as a prophet, a spokesman for God, was that he had to go to the most wicked king Israel had ever seen, an immoral, ruthless leader, a dictator, and he had to tell this guy that because he was so rotten morally, famine and judgment would come on his administration and he would never, ever be a great king. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were God's chosen spokesman and I was supposed to go and tell this to a guy who had no respect for God, much less for his servants, you're really taking your life in your hands when you go to slap a king in the face like that. But what we see is that to his credit, Elijah followed through. He didn't just know what he was supposed to say. He had to go physically into the courtroom of a king and say those words boldly to that man's face. Later on, after he proclaimed drought and famine in the land, I'm sure Elijah, though he didn't vocalize it, was thinking, um, excuse me, Lord, what am I going to eat and drink? I, I went and said what I'm supposed to say, but am I supposed to suffer along with everyone else? And God said to him, don't worry about it. I've got you covered. I've got some ravens who are going to give you some food on a daily basis, and I'm going to lead you to a little brook that's going to have just enough water supply for you to survive on. And so there it is. And now... now I'm sure, we, because it's a familiar story to us, we're like, don't worry about it, Elijah, just go. Ravens will bring food, and I promise in this desert you'll find a little brook if you just keep walking. Have you ever started walking into a wilderness, into the desert, without knowing where you're headed? Every year we go out to Tuba City, I think when we go to visit Coal Miners Canyon, if no one else came with me and I just started walking inland, I wouldn't have any assurance that I'd find water. All I see is dust everywhere. Do you realize how much fear he had to overcome to follow through on this, to walk towards a supposed brook and sit around waiting for selfish birds like ravens to bring you food. And yet, to his credit, he did it. He went to that place which God told him, and he found the water, and he found the birds. Later, after the brook dries up, God says, don't worry about it, I got you covered still. I want you to go to Zarephath, the little town nearby, and I'm going, to, I'm going to have you find this poor young widow, the poorest, most disenfranchised member of society, and I want you to hit her up for her last meal, and she'll give it to you, don't worry. And I'm sure Elijah's thinking, I can't do that, I'm a man of religion, I'm a man of faith. I can't find the poorest woman in town and go, listen, I know you want to eat and feed your son and all that, but would you feed me first? Would you take your last meal and deny your son and give it to a stranger? You know, that's one thing to be told you're supposed to do that. It's another thing altogether to actually see that woman and go, here we go. I must be crazy to do this. And yet, if you look at it, look what it did. 
Look what it says. So you went to Zarephath, right? You see all the instances of that. Later on it says, he called to her and asked. Those are action words in this story. They are Elijah and the widow's response to what God has asked them to do. Now, when this young widow, who's on her last meal, literally for her and her son, and then they're about to eat it and die. How depressing is that? And the stranger comes into town, and you can imagine the hope she must have felt when the strange man, who looked fairly well-dressed, approached her at the city gate, and she's like, this guy's going to offer me some help. And so he has the audacity to ask her, listen, I know you don't have much, but can I have whatever you have left for me? Inexplicably, the woman does this. She went away and did as Elijah told her. Now, you may be so familiar with the story, it's lost its wonder, but I read it again with fresh eyes, and I'm amazed at how many crazy things are contained in this story. How differently it would have played out if I were in either one of their shoes, because a lot of this stuff defies all common sense. Yet you and I both know that there are times in our lives when each of us has felt an intense inner prompting to do something that didn't make any sense on paper. How many of you know that's true, right? You felt something and it's urging you. You're like, this makes no sense. I have just invested years of my life, thousands of dollars in this education, and now I feel like I'm supposed to go and do this. I think I've told you the story before of a young man who grew up in our youth group when I was a youth pastor in, in Philadelphia, and he went on to a Harvard education And then he decided that God had called him to ministry. And the uproar (laughs) among his loved ones, because there was this immediate reaction that, boy, you are wasting a Harvard education. As a man of the cloth, I resent that kind of idea that you're wasting it on God. But I can understand that sentiment from a human standpoint, right? It makes no sense. You go to the most prestigious university in the country, to do what you could have done with a high school degree. And the question is, why? Why? It makes no sense, and yet these promptings come, and the question is, what do we do with them? In each of these cases, where there's a fork in the road of faith and action, what God gave to that person was both a promise and a command. He said, I want you to do this, and if you do this, then X, Y, Z will happen for you. Do you see that those two things so often come together? A command coupled with a promise. Because promises require us to have a response of faith. I believe you, God. But commands require us to have a response of action. I will follow you, God. And you cannot really separate those two things. That's what James is teaching. That you can't just say, I trust you, I believe you, God, but I'm not going to move one inch from this place. Nor can you just recklessly rush headlong believing God has called you to X, Y, and Z without first believing that God will keep His promises in your life. That is a quick road to bitterness if you just do that. The two things absolutely go together. And that's the lesson being taught through the life story of Elijah and this widow. Now what do you do when you get those serious inner promptings? Now, I've, I've started getting those promptings um, a long time ago. I didn't know what they were when I was a kid. But, you know, like sometimes I'd be at school and I'd see another kid getting mercilessly teased by the bully or the most popular kids. You know, how, why is it that when you have the upper hand, it makes people so mean? I just don't understand, right? 
It's so rare to find a very physically attractive person who's genuinely nice. Why is that? Now, most of them come to our church. That's why I think we, we need to share with the rest of the world. But, you know, you see why power and having the advantage makes people mean-spirited. And there are times when, as a kid, I would see that going on, and I would feel this inner prompting, stick up for that person, step into the situation, and get involved, even if it means you're going to get punched in the nose. And I would feel it, and I wouldn't know what to do with it, and I'd just go, well, glad it's not me getting teased. And I'd walk away. Over the years, those things matured, you know, and became more serious, more costly promptings. Do this, do that, and I would feel it, burning a hole in my gut, and so many times, I just wouldn't do anything with it. My response was neither belief nor action. It was to just ignore what God himself was clearly doing in my heart. I want you to think about what else is buried in the story that indicts us when we think about our failure to follow God's prompting. Ravens are notoriously selfish with food. Ravens are not the animal that you use in children's stories to symbolize a sharing spirit. Ravens will peck at each other for a piece of dead flesh. That's what a raven is. And so the idea that a raven would so counteract its own internal wiring, its instinct to be selfish, and deliver choice morsels of food to some other species is unthinkable. But even this wild animal obeyed the prompting of God as it says in the text, I have commanded ravens to feed you. And what God's saying is even wild animals obey the promptings I put in their hearts. Look at this widow. There's no indication that she is a follower of of the God of Israel. When she meets Isaiah or Elijah, she says, "By by the name of the Lord, your God... Your God. This is not her God. And yet, clearly it says, I have commanded a widow in Zarephath to take care of you. In other words, Elijah, when you ask that widow, a total stranger, for her last meal, something will stir in that woman, though she doesn't know me, and she will feel herself, even before she thinks it through, going to get that last meal for you. She won't be able to explain it, but she won't be able to deny the strength of that inner prompting, and she will do as I commanded her heart. Let me ask you something. If even wild animals and unbelievers can feel the prompting of God in their spirit and obey. How much more ought the people of God, when we feel those promptings, follow God in trust and obedient action? Pull the trigger. There's no way to recall that bullet once it's fired, but it's worth it to make that decisive step of obedient, faith-filled action. I guess the real question I'm asking is, can you... And I be commanded by God. Can you and I be commanded by God? How many of you are parents? Would you just raise your hand? Okay. (laughs) So tired, you're like, I think I am. I don't know. Whatever. Now, if you're the parent of young children, isn't it the most annoying thing when you give a simple little command like, come over here? And your kid goes, no. Now, let me ask, how many of you guys go, oh, dear me, let me ask them a little nicer. Little Johnny, would you come over here? There's a piece of candy. In the fr- That's not how you act. Here's how I act. Maybe, maybe I'm just the most fleshly person in this room, but I go, hey, get over here. Daddy said, get over here. Why? Because I said so. 
because I'm your daddy and this is the smallest of the things I will ask from you. If you can't even do this, you are, you are lower than a wild animal. Even the dog will come to me if I call it. It's frustrating when someone over whom you have justified authority refuses to obey the simplest little command. But here's the question we have to wrestle with. Can God of the universe command you? Or are you so proud and obstinate that for the very fact that even God himself called you to do something, you're like, no, I would have done it anyway until you made me do it. Now I'm not going to do it because I am not a being who can be commanded. No one commands me. This story tells us if that's true, then you rank somewhere lower than wild animals and unbelievers in our ability to respond to the strong, clear promptings of God. And we need to just confess how obstinate we can be. In America, we call it thinking, analyzing, processing. Really what it is is delaying obedience. Just going, you know, God, even you can't make me do this so I want to do it for myself. So let's let that marinate for a while and let's move on. Here's a second thing to consider, a second principle about faith. I love that picture. It makes me hurt to look at it, but faith must be stretched. Faith must be stretched. As we read this story, another somewhat troubling theme seems to arise, and that is this, at each point where a person wants to settle into what God has done and get comfortable He removes that thing which is given security and calls them to venture out one more time into the wilderness of faith. Why does God do that? God, it seems like, is like the Father who cuddles you and wraps you up in a warm blanket at night and at two in the morning takes the blanket off and goes, Ha! What's it like to miss the blanket and need warmth again? I've got that blanket right here. Come get it. Why is God like that? Why does God at times seem to be somebody who gives you in one hand and takes away in the other? What is the story there? I want you to think about Elijah's story, okay? Think about his diet during this famine and drought period. Now, I'm sure Bear Grylls would have enjoyed what Elijah was eating. And this man is just insane. You go a little bit crazy every time you watch an episode of his show. He's just, he just found a dead zebra in the wilderness and he just started, oh, it doesn't smell that putrid. I think this would be good eating. And he just bites into the, I don't know what part, it might be the neck or the, the butt or something, but he's eating zebra. I'm sure Bear Grylls would have enjoyed the food that the ravens brought. But do you realize that ravens are omnivores and the majority of their meat diet exists of carrion? If you don't know what that word means, it's dead meat. It's basically this, that there's a good chance that just as much roadkill made it into Elijah's diet as anything else, because ravens specialize in finding dead meat. They are not hunters, really. So he's not exactly at the four seasons here, okay? This is food that wild animals have picked up in their dirty beaks, and some of you would be like, I don't want to eat that, and and you pick it up like this, and this is what he lived on, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then he had this little brook. This is not the Mississippi River. It's not this mighty flowing thing where you just reach in your hand. It's just enough water for one dude to stay alive. That's all it is. And when that thing dried up, I want you to think about what it felt like to be Elijah. You're like, Lord, I did everything you asked me to do. This is what we often preface our, our complaints to God with. I've done everything right. 
Everything that dumb pastor told me to do, I did it exactly the way he said. I read my Bible, I have quiet time, I give offering. So why is this happening to me? I can't find an answer that satisfies me. Why is this going on for me? Why is it, Lord, that every time I get a little cozy with something you've given, you seem to want to take it away and make me have to venture out and trust you all over again? He asked the Lord, where am I supposed to go now? Have you ever asked that? Thanks, man. Thanks a lot. All right, great. Really? Where am I supposed to go now? What was God's answer to that question? It's just as crazy. He says, I want you to go to Zarephath in Sidon. Do you know where that is? That's one of the most thriving cities in Jezebel's home country. Remember Jezebel? Elijah and Jezebel didn't get along. They had big clashes. Rush Limbaugh and Hillary Clinton. Just picture that, okay? We're talking about two people who would not want to share a cross-country drive together. And he's being sent to Jezebel's home country. You know what else is in Sidon? It is ground zero for Baal worship. The single greatest competitor to God in that region for worshipers. He is being sent to the heart of enemy territory for his next meal. And on top of that, if that's not a stretch enough, God says, and guess who's going to feed you? It's the poorest lady in town, and you're going to steal from her hands her very last morsel of food. How's that, Elijah? Go and get it. Now, what is that supposed to do to Elijah? Why is God doing that? Because it stretches him. It defies logic. It makes him wonder, is this really the truth? Is this going to work? How is this going to pan out? here's the way I see God so often working. When we become more comfortable with the things God's given than with God who is the giver, He begins to pluck away those feathers that make our comforter so downy soft. He begins to take away those things which are starting to replace God as the source of our confidence. For some of us, it's a very healthy, was there such a thing anymore in America? A very healthy 401k. Remember that? That used to exist in in this country. Uh, But for some people, it's their retirement planning. It's the promise they have on this website that says, if you retire today, this much money would come to you in a check every month. And they rest on that. We rest on a lot of things that God has given. And as soon as the gift becomes more important to us than the giver, God, who is a jealous God, says, this is not good for either of us. This is certainly not good for me because I resent giving you something that is now replacing me in your life. But it's not good for us either because that gift you have is not permanent. Nothing you receive as an answer to prayer in this world will last forever. Everything leaves. And then what do you do when the one thing you staked all your hopes in is taken away from you or walks out the door to go to college? What do you do? You die, I guess, unless your eyes are fixed on someone else who continues to stand behind you and stand in front of you in your life. Do you realize that what this is saying is if faith in order to grow must constantly be stretched because faith that isn't stretched begins to wither and contract and stiffen. Let me give you a little, this is one of the few physical demonstrations I'm going to give you. When I was nine years old, I was in Taekwondo, okay, which is uh, karate for Koreans, and I was a black belt. I used to be really limber. I used to be able to kick like this, okay, where I could get my knee 
to touch my ear. Okay? That's basically standing split. I mean, that's a crazy kick. I used to be able to do that. Now, let me show you how far I can get now. Ow! That, that wasn't for effect. That really hurt. I should have stretched before I did that. <clears throat> that really hurt. Um, I can get about... Well, that last kick, I got about this high. Can't do it again. Do you see how, how sad that is? Seriously, that really hurt. Any chiropractors in the house? Um, I got about that high. That's about 50% of what I did as a nine-year-old. Do you know why that happened? It's not just that I got older. It's a big part of it. But because I haven't stretched that way in years. I, I haven't made that leg move that way at all. And so it stiffened where it was because why do you need to stretch something when all it ever does is go up one stair after another towards a restaurant? Right? Even when I exercise, what do I do? I walk up the stairs on the stairway. I mean, that's as far as my leg ever has to stretch. Why would it want to be stretched any further? But there will come a time when possibly it will, my life will depend on me being more limber and I just won't have the legs for it. The idea of stretching is that that which is not stretched stiffens where it is. And the truth is life is so full of difficulty and challenge and God is so desirous to be a center of your life that you will never be free of the need to have faith. And if you do not get your faith stretched on a regular basis, it will stiffen right where it is and you won't have it when you need it most. That's why God takes away on a regular basis those things which are replacing Him as the object of your confidence because He is stretching the muscle of faith one more time, because it serves you well and it honors Him. It keeps Him where He's supposed to be in our lives. Let me give you one last principle here. And that is that faith produces more faith. Here's another old school way of saying it. Faith begets faith. So Elijah and the widow and her son have formed this awkward, strange little household, right? A total stranger who had the audacity to ask this woman for her last meal. They eat it together, and the next day, just like God promised, that jar of oil and the, the, the jar of, of flour were replenished just enough for that day. And so this is a little household built around food. They're together because this is the only way they're all going to eat and survive this thing. And so they're living there just fine. It's become kind of awkward. They know what time of the day this guy goes to the bathroom and she goes to the bathroom. And it's become kind of comfortable. And all of a sudden, what happens? Just when they feel like we could do this forever, tragedy strikes. The woman's young son falls ill and the illness is so severe, this is a, quite a euphemism, the breath leaves him. That's a way of saying he died. He got so sick that he stopped breathing. And listen, you could just see the heartache and desperation and even the hint of accusation in this broken-hearted woman's words to Elijah. Look what she says. She then said to Elijah, Oh, man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to punish my sins by killing my son? You know what she's saying? She's saying, you know, I was just going to eat my last meal and die quietly. That would have been fine with me. But no, you had to come here and show me this stupid magic vial of oil and this magic jar full of flour and give me the resurgence of hope all over again that maybe, maybe I'm going to make it out of this famine and out of this drought and maybe me and my son are going to have a good future together. 
Maybe even I'll find a nice man because I'm still young, I still got it, and maybe, just maybe, I'll have a tomorrow after all. Why did you make me hope again? Why did you make me believe in things again when I could have just died and gotten it over with? Do you see how angry and bitter and brokenhearted she is? And rightfully so, understandably so. What would you be like if your most precious child were taken from you? Now let's look at the story from the other side, from Elijah's perspective. Here he is, the man of God. I felt something on a very small scale similar to this when I walk into a hospital room where somebody has a terminal illness and the family says, please do something, pray for their healing. You guys have no idea, most of you, what that feels like to walk into a hospital room where everyone is in such despair and needs hope and you walk in as the man of God for the hour and they go, please just do something. For some reason your prayer will mean more than my prayer. I don't know why, but for some reason I believe that. And you're standing there like, I was just eating McDonald's 10 minutes ago. I'm like as mortal a being as they come. I don't know what I can do. And you feel the pressure intensely on you. You, man of God, do something that brings God into this picture. You do it. You stand up there and pretend that you're God's man. Show us, man of God, what can be done. Because the rest of us have run out of answers. What do you do in a situation like that. You know what I'm amazed by is Elijah's quick response. Give me your son, he says. I wouldn't have said that. I'd be like, let's pray together. I don't know, sprinkle some fairy dust. What am I supposed to do in a situation like that? But Elijah does an amazing thing. Give me your son, Elijah said. And he took him from her arms and he carried him to the upper room where he was staying and he laid him on his bed. Now listen, with that single act is an implicit promise Leave it to me, something's going to happen. You don't just go, give me your dead son, I'm going to go upstairs to the private room and do something. What's he going to do? Embalm the kid? He's saying, have a little hope. God will show up. That's a lot of faith. That's a lot of faith. That's like me walking to the hospital room going, can everyone clear out of the room? The next time you come in, this person's going to be up dancing a jig with me, you know, and like, totally healthy. I can't make that promise. That's the worst jig you'll ever see in the history of jigging. But... Let me tell you something. That takes an enormous amount of confidence in God to be able to do something like that. That simple act was a a physical promise. I got it covered. And then he brings him up to the room, and that's when he gets real honest. Lord, I got the kid up here. Seriously. What on earth? Why are you doing this? He's genuinely perplexed. He doesn't see the purpose of God. He just knows something is wrong here. And he says, God, what could you possibly have in mind for us? And then he cries out boldly, I guess you're in charge. God, please let the breath and the life return to this boy. And he does something very symbolic. In the, in the olden days, in the ancient world, when, when people, they, they picture demons the way they came into you, is that the demon would lie right on top of you, face to face, arm to arm, foot to foot, right on top of you, and all its demonic essence would travel through that co- direct interface of contact into the person. And so as a direct opposition to that kind of thing, he was doing that as a channel for God, saying, I will lie on top of this boy, and I will stretch myself out over him as a covering, and God, you return the life to this boy. That's a bold gesture. 
That's faith that is considerably greater than all the faith we've seen Elijah demonstrate up until this point in the story. And here's the amazing thing. That faith is justified and the boy lives again. And the woman rejoices and she says, I had my doubts because everything else you did, I know you were speaking for God, but boy, this one takes the cake. It broke the straw, the camel's, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. It now has pushed me over the edge of decision. If I ever doubted God before, I now know that He lives and you represent Him. Because it seems to me that in life, the challenges of faith get incrementally greater and heavier over time. The challenge of faith you had as an eight-year-old will look like nothing compared to the challenges of faith you have as a 38-year-old. That's the nature of the evolution of all things, isn't it? And what God is saying through Elijah's story is that faith exercised today breeds greater faith for the greater challenges of tomorrow. Today's faith is the seed of tomorrow's faith. Not because you have a faith muscle that grows, not because your capacity to believe positive outcomes grows, but because your picture of God who is faithful gets clearer and clearer every time you see Him act. That's an amazing thing when you, th- when you find something that seems uh, on the surface to be impossible and God pulls through and does something. Your picture of God grows more solid. You know, recently, a friend at our church helped me to, really, I shouldn't say helped me, he installed the sink while I watched and fetched things at the store. Plumbing terrifies me. I don't know what I'm doing with plumbing, and I just watched this brother install a sink in my kitchen, and having watched it, what once seemed impossible, I feel like, oh, now I feel like I could kind of do it too. It's amazing what happens when you see someone who knows what they're doing demonstrate that competence in front of you. It's contagious. And the thing is, I now have no doubts about what that brother can do. He is the Bob Vila of Harvest Community Church. I am convinced in my mind that I'll go to him for everything. Do you realize that faith grows not when your internal strength grows, but when you put your life on the line and trust God, and he shows up again and again, and each time he shows up, you have different eyes for him. You're like, oh man. He's a pretty big and capable God after all. And whereas you once wondered about Him, you wonder less and less because you start to see and believe more and more. I want to ask you, could you use a God like that so that your prayers aren't like the prayers of those who don't believe? We just go, well, we're at the end of our rope. Let's just throw up an SOS. If there is a God out there, do something. Do you know how empty and weak a prayer that is? I'm not judging those who pray that way. I'm saying there's no power in it. And they know it in their hearts. Because after all, who are they praying to? Who are they praying to? Who will hear that and pick it up? That's like me leaving a package on my curb and going, Oh, please, someone pick it up and take it to the right address. That's a wishful thought if there ever was one. But imagine if you knew UPS. This God will show up in our lives. And every time he does, he will stretch your vision of him a little bit more. And you're going to need that. Because I promise you, life will throw challenges at you. Because God wants to remain at the center of your life. How does Elijah make such a huge leap in faith in such a short time. Because today's faith 
lays the seed for tomorrow's faith. And that's just the way it works. I want to invite you to just bow with me. I know sometimes in a sermon, a lot is said and, you know, it's not just what I'm saying up here that's running through your minds. I, I'm realist enough to know that you've been thinking about the Bears game and you've been thinking about your 401k ever since I mentioned it. Uh, you've been thinking about a lot of things. And so sometimes at the end of a sermon, you're not sure where your mind's going to take you as you walk out of this room. Let me give you a, a, a closing thought that I hope will focus everything. Do you realize that you're in control of virtually nothing at the at, at, in the final analysis, there's almost nothing that you have the final say on. You can make children, but you can't guarantee their safety or even that they'll grow up to be good people. You can buy a house and you can't guarantee it won't burn down or be foreclosed someday. You can do so much, but you cannot make it in this world without faith. And faith does not come from your power of positive thinking, it comes from knowing that God is big enough to meet those challenges. He is real. And when you pray, you don't leave a package on the curb for some benevolent person to get. You give it to God and He will carry it to where it needs to go. This is what faith is. And if you don't have faith, there's only one place to get it. We start by saying, God, show me yourself. Because faith comes from God. Why don't I leave you with that thought and wherever you find yourself right now, just bow your head for a moment of quiet. Think about what faith is in your life, who you hope in, and then ask the Lord to help you turn over your trust to Him. He will meet you. I'll just give you a couple minutes. Let's all be quiet and let's just really pray that and then the, the praise team will lead us into some final songs. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.